We are, uh, we are in the middle of uh, the book of John. We're in John 17. We've been in there in John a long time. And now we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 11. We're continuing. John 17 is just basically one long prayer by Jesus. And we looked at, two weeks ago, we looked at verses 1 through 5, where Jesus is speaking directly about between him and the Father. It was it's just a powerful moment. And now it broadens. He begins to talk about the disciples, not just the disciples, though, by extension, us also. But also, a little later, he's going to very specifically talk about those who come after. But right now, he's, he's talking about to praying and talking, uh, talking to God about the disciples, and there are implications for us also. So I'm going to read this passage, verses 6 through 11 on John 17. You can listen, or if you have it on your phone or your Bible is with you, follow along. Starting with verse 6, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Now, one of the things that's very interesting here is this, this, in fact, this whole passage, but here especially, uh, the whole John 17, but here especially, this is very difficult because Jesus is using terminology You know, he says, the name you gave me, which was your, you know, he just goes back and forth. But what this is, is this is part, and and I've mentioned this before, there's a number of places in John. This is part that the very early church, the apostles and the very early church, as they wrestled with this idea, how do you understand these words? And this is that concept that we call the Trinity. It was born out of passages like this, where there's this back and forth of names, this back and forth of glorifying this back and forth of equality. And so this is what, that's what grew out of this. We've been talking about this some, but now Jesus is praying for his disciples. He's laying the groundwork for the church. He's praying for the church. And we're gonna learn three things about the church in this passage. I want you to see first, it is founded on truth. Jesus is on the way to the cross, okay? Just a reminder, this is that whole thing of trying to put yourself in their shoes, trying to understand what's going on. Imagine you were a disciple. Jesus is on the way to cross. He's talking about dying. He's talking about leaving them. That, this is something they had not considered at all. And you, know, and you think about it. I mean, let's, sometimes we, 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 we bust on the disciples, maybe a little too much. Think about it. They left everything for him. They left everything, and they believed it was worth the cost. In, in Luke 18, Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. He said, Jesus, we've given up everything. We've walked away from everything, families, from, from finance, you know, our jobs, to follow you. And, you know, some of that, if you, if you begin to understand, here's, here's what may be going on a little bit in their mind. Is there, we've left everything to follow you. How, you're leaving? It seems like maybe that was a worthless cost for us. You know, and here's why. We have to understand what's going on 
during that time. This, is, this can be so key for us as we begin to look. Messiahs had popped up in a number of times previously to Jesus, right? That has happened. People who said suddenly, I believe I'm the Messiah, and they went around declaring it. Now, you notice how Jesus did it totally different. Jesus didn't make a big deal. He just started going around and doing things instead of starting a big publicity campaign. But when Jesus was a child, maybe an early teenager, a significant Messiah wannabe popped up. His name was Judas the Galilean, all right? And he, he came from the part of Galilee where the zealots were the strongest. He organized a revolution. He got an army. He got a couple thousand at least men to follow him. They stormed the city of Sepphoris, which was a Roman city not far from there. They, they, took the, took, they overwhelmed the city. They took the, uh, the armory where the Roman army would, you know, the Roman army would stash weapons in different places in the world just in case. And this was one of them in Sepphoris. So they suddenly armed thousands, maybe 5,000, there's some estimates, men with the latest weaponry. And they started going through killing Romans, attacking Roman, attacking Roman strongholds. And Rome responded first. They, they sent a, a, a garrison out of Rome, out of uh, Jerusalem, and that was about 500 to 800 men, and they got obliterated. They got overwhelmed. They had no clue what they were walking into. So this makes Rome sit up. We can't have this get out. We can't have one of the, the people we have subjugated. We can't have them win battles. So they sent a big army, and they attacked. They won and then what they did, at least 2,000 of the men, Josephus talks about this a little bit, at least 2,000 of the men were crucified throughout Galilee in towns. So they said some towns would have just, and they'd crucify three men in the town square. This is what happens when you say you're the Messiah and you go head to head with Rome. This is what happens, and Judas the Galilean's big thing was don't pay taxes. This is what happens when you don't pay taxes to Rome. You end up crucified. And there is no doubt that Jesus was in a town where there were men. He saw it as a young boy or a young teenager. He walked through town, and they left him up for a week. And he saw, this is what happens. This is what happens. And it's an interesting thing because we don't know. I mean, I always speculate about this. Oh, I'm going to get off track here. We don't know what Jesus knew of himself as a child. We don't know. But I'm sure, I mean, we know early on, he said, I'm about my father's business, you know, when he was just a young boy. And I can imagine him walking through that town square and looking up and going, yep, that's what happens when you say you're the king, when you try to take almost like a foreshadowing of what was going to happen to him. And so these disciples, they all saw that too. And so now they're wondering, is Rome going to come after them? Who would lead them when Jesus is gone? Who would guide them? What is the next step? If Jesus is telling us he's going to be gone, what's the next step? What's the anchor that we can hold on to? In stormy times, in uncertain times, in depressing times, in times of anguish, that's a question we all face. And they're facing that. And so what does Jesus do, knowing that's what's going on? Does he give them wise words? You know, 
pious platitudes, good advice, recommendations, you know, saying, I'm not you, but I would think this might be the best plan. Or, you know, the stuff that people often do if you've ever been in a very difficult situation and you know how it is that people come up to you and they offer you advice that you go, man, you don't understand. You don't even have a clue. People that say things like every cloud has a silver lining. Years ago when I was a kid, we had a sailboat. and We were out on this big bay and a squall, it was in Florida, and squalls just come up almost without warning. And we, we ran for the marina, and it, and it caught us just as we were pulling in before we could get to our slip. And so my dad put me on the, on the bow of this, of this boat, and I'm holding on to another big boat, and my other brother was on the stern, and my dad was on, you know, the starboard side holding on just to keep it from as this, we were being battered by this thunderstorm. And the boat I was holding on to was struck by lightning. And it blew me back about 10 feet. I landed on the cabin of our boat and just, I just like laid there for a second. And then I went, ah, and I started crying, crying. So I want to tell you something. Every cloud does not have a silver lining. Some clouds bring pain. That's just the way it is. And I know what's happening. Some of you that know me are going, oh, that explains a lot. <laughs> ah, that's it. Now we know why he's like that. Yeah, right? Jesus is praying for them. He's reminding them as he prays. He's teaching them as he prays. All great prayers teach. And Jesus gives them truth. Not pious platitudes, not good recommendations. Here's some advice. Not every cloud has a silver lining. He reminds them of truth, the one thing that we can hold on to, right? He says this, I have revealed you, talking to God, I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. He's focusing on truth here. He's telling them, God chose you, God wanted you, God wants you on his team. He wants you. Jesus didn't die for you reluctantly, wishing he didn't have to do it for you because you were really bad. He did it willingly. Why? Because he wanted you. And he emphasizes this, a very interesting phrase. God gave you to Jesus. I don't even know how exactly how that works out. But Jesus is thanking God and he's teaching them. He's saying, listen, they believed the truth. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. He goes, Jesus says, they understand what I've taught you are your words. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. It's so interesting. Jesus has an incredible amount of faith and trust in these people who are about to fail him miserably. He's saying, I know they believe. I know they're believing. I'm set on it. They're going to screw up. But I know they'll come back. A little later, he says, no, one's not coming back. Right? He, he, he mentions that, talking about Judas. So they know where the truth comes from. They accept the truth from Jesus. They understand this is eternal truth. 
This is the kind of truth you can rest your life upon. You know, we talk about truth in our culture, and there's ideas on truth. There's two, and I, I know I'm just kind of making a very brief and an overview, but there, there's two categories of truth in modern thought, I think. At least in our culture, there's public uh, and objective truth, and there's private and subjective truth. So, for instance, public and objective truth is things like, you could even say the law of gravity. It's, it, but also, in our culture, there's very much this idea that there, is, there are human rights, there is dignity in a human being that our, whole, that our culture just believes. And ideas about this may vary. The way people say it may vary. But most people believe this is true and it applies to all people. It applies to all people. They're like objective truths, public truths. They're like a red light, right? A red light is not just a suggestion. A yellow light is a suggestion. In my view, I guess. <laughs> A green light is a command. Hurry up. But a red light is not a, subjection, a suggestion. It's, a, it's not just a recommendation. It's not just like, oh, I'll obey because I know it's better for me to obey. No, it's, it's solid. If you, if you disobey, there are consequences. At least they're supposed to be. You must stop. And then there's private and subjective truth, right? That's like this. If I say my wife's barbecue is the best barbecue there is, that is a private and subjective truth. Now, let me tell you, I love it. It's rich, it's tangy, it has a burn that kicks in slow, right? It kind of comes in gradually. First taste, you go, oh, this is kind of a sweet barbecue. And then after a little bit, you go, ah, my mouth is hot. And then if you eat faster than you should, all of a sudden you go, my lips are burning. I love this barbecue. I love it. I love it. I, I, I just, yeah. Okay, but that's a subjective truth because what I'm really saying is this is the best barbecue for me because other people love other kinds of barbecue. Some people love mustard-based barbecue. Some people love all kinds of different barbecues, right? So there's differing opinions, and it doesn't mean any one of them is wrong. So objective truth, it's true whether you believe it or not. Subjective truth is true for you because you believe it. And over the last couple of centuries in our culture, more and more people, it's more and more common for people, I guess, to say that truth dealing with spiritual reality is subjective truth. They're saying it works for you because it works for you. So that's fine. It's not universally true. Now, the first and most obvious problem with that assertion is to say that spiritual truth claims can't be absolute truth is that saying that is an absolute truth claim about spiritual truths. If someone says spiritual truths are all subject for anybody, none of them are absolute truth. Well, the problem is you just made an absolute statement about spiritual truths. You just broke the law you gave, right? That's, what, that's the first, that's just an obvious problem. But what is going on here is Jesus is saying, mm -mm, there are eternal truths. Jesus is saying that I gave to you what he gave to me, divine truth. Therefore, it's not merely wise ideas. It's not good advice. It's not timely recommendations. It's objective truth. Your belief or non-belief concerning that truth makes no difference to the truth. It's still truth. It makes a huge difference to you 
in your life, but it makes no difference to that truth, regardless of what you believe. Now, this is why this matters. When there are no moral absolutes in this world, then nothing really matters. If everything is relative, then nothing means anything. Meaning just becomes what's expedient at the time. Morality becomes a matter of who happens to have the most power to enforce it. With no absolutes, then life is just reduced to entertaining ourselves until we die. And unfortunately, that is also what lots of Christians are doing in this world. Just entertaining ourselves until we die. That is not what God has for us. You can see you can see this in our culture. YOLO leads to FOMO. Right? You only live once leads to fear of missing out. And so you look for the entertainment. But if there's absolutes, then that means there's things worth dying for. That means there's things worth living for. Now we believe the Bible is true, and therefore because of that, because it is the truth Jesus says it is, then there are implications that we have to think through. What are the implications of this eternal truths, these eternal truths that Jesus has taught? What are the implications to me when I suffer? Because there are implications now. What are the implications to me to comfort me in my grief? Do these implications give me hope in sorrow? Do they help explain the world I live in? And Jesus is saying, yes. It is the revelation of God to mankind, God speaking truth to his children. It is supernatural truth, and yet it is very personal truth because it affects me. How will it change my life? How does my life even matter? These truths speak to this in ways that we cannot dodge. They are God's words to us, and they change us when we yield to them. We see his heart. We're formed by it. We're shaped by it. It becomes a part of our identity. And that leads us to the second point. The church, the implications for the church. The church is founded on truth and it is shaped by its identity. If it's shaped by its identity, then it's very crucial for us to understand what our identity is, right? In verse six, he says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of this world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now, I know I just said that verse in case you're thinking, does Bob realize? Yes, I know I said that verse. It applies in both ideas here. There's a, because here's what's going on here. Very important for us to see. There's a relationship here. It's a father with his children. It's family. You know, in our world, especially in our culture, there's a time when children stop listening to their parents and they think they're really dumb. Usually lasts, oh, about 20 years. Something like that. But the idea is that they come around after a few years, they see that their parents were pretty smart after all. At least that's what's supposed to happen. It hasn't happened with me yet. I'm still waiting on that part. But they're supposed to come around and say, okay. Now, if you've committed your life to Jesus, then we are his children. Then we have a father, a father who's incredibly wise. We are adopted. This is so key. We are adopted into the family of God. A couple of times I've gone into what was adoption like in those days? And it is striking. It's not quite like our adoption. It's more difficult. It's more thorough. 
you know, adopted children in those days could never be disowned. And just so many things that help us. Um, we are adopted into the family of God. There's an identity that comes from this relationship. There is an identity that comes from the fact that we are a part of the family of God. It's a part of who we are. You know, my parents, um, my dad was raised in a little farm, sharecropper, dirt poor in, in, uh, in, in Georgia. And my mom was, married, was uh, born into a family that was kind of high society, uh, pretty involved in a lot of those two things. How God got those two together is, is an amazing story in and of itself. But my mom's family and then our family also would do this, would vacation sometimes across Mobile Bay at a cottage on, on, on the bay in Fairhope, a little town called Fairhope, Alabama. And my grandparents were known there. My grandfather oftentimes did financial help for the little town and, and, and uh, helped them with a number of things. He, he, he was a banker. And, uh, and so they, they were pretty, the Conovers, that was their name, were, were pretty well known in that little town. And my parents retired to that little town. And one day, our kids were older. I probably was in my late 40s, early 50s. And I told my mom, I said, I'm going to walk into town and get something from the drugstore. Now, it was summertime in lower Alabama, L.A. to me. Uh, it was summertime. It was hot. And it was sticky. And it's just, just the time you don't, it's the least enjoyable time in that, in that part of the country. And I said, I'm just going to walk. I had shorts on, and I just had a, some sort of T-shirt. And my mother looked at me, horrified. She said, Robert, you cannot go into town. Dress like that. Someone will recognize you of being a conover, and it will be shameful. And I said, Mom, I'm a Mosley which was a dumb thing to say because my mom's kind of, you know, I'm kind of happy. But what was she saying? Because you come from the Conover family, you have an identity. And that identity is Conovers don't dress like everyone else. They look nice. They dress nice. They wear slacks and short sleeves and possibly a hat when they're in town. Shorts and a T-shirt is for working in the garden. That's it. See, she believes something. She believes there's an identity involved here. Think about this. You are a part of the family of God. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are a part of this family of God. And there is an identity there that is distinct and it has implications. It doesn't have implications necessarily to, to, with dress or any of those things. It has implications of the heart, implications of life, how we live, how we treat people, what is important to us. And it is different from this world. The church is a community of people from this world that is in this world and is for this world. This is who we are. This is important for us. In verse nine, he said, I pray for them. 
I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. We belong to God. This is a message of grace. God loved us before we existed. The world operates on this principle. The world operates this way. Do the things that are required, and you are in. If you're in the financial world, you do the things that are this way, and you are in. If you're in in the religious world, you have to obey these rules. If you obey these rules, you're in, right? It's all on you. If you disobey, you're out. We are called to a relationship with God, and then obedience flows. You see the difference? Obedience doesn't set up the relationship. Obedience flows out of the relationship. One time when my kids were real little, I was talking to them, and I I asked them, uh, why do you think mommy and daddy love you? Why do you think we love you? And they started brainstorming. You know how little kids, mm, they screw up their little faces. They said, one of them said, because we listen to you. One of them says, because we do good at school. We don't get in trouble a lot. We get along and we don't fight a lot. And I told him, these are good things. Uh, listen, I, I'm, so, I'm happy for that. But the reason I love you is not because you obey. I love you because I'm your father. And she's your mom. That's why we love you. This kind of love is not linked to obedience. We started loving our kids before they were born. It's not contractual. It's not like a lease that needs to be renewed every so often. It's a love that exists because, and I remember telling them, because God gave you to me. That's why I love you. That's why I love you. And that's a secure love. That's not an insecure love. Because you don't have to earn that love because they would have disearned it quite a few times. I mean, I think that. And so then, what happens? So we can live, not for ourselves, but we are a community that's marked by self-denial. As a community, within ourselves, we're marked by that. Scripture tells us, people looked and said, behold how they love one another, right? It wasn't like, oh, they hug a lot. No, it was like they did things for each other that showed how much they love each other. Behold how they love each other. So in verse 11, he says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. And so this verse brings out an idea, an idea of self-denial. Now, I know probably none of you came to church today thinking, man, I hope he talks about self-denial. That's my favorite subject, right? Which is kind of weird. We're talking about self-denial right before we pick out on chili, right? Right before we pick out on chili, but it's going to be no judgment. Nobody's going to, no one knows if you go home and have a stomachache. We're not going to worry about that. But this is a community They may be one as we are one. That's what God wants. He wants that oneness. How's that working out? A community of love, a community of peace, a community of unity. 
where there is a lack of love, where there is hostility, especially in the church, God is not in that. He's not in that. We have to be very careful as followers of God how we walk that way. And we see in verse 9 that we are God's. We belong to him. We follow him. If we do that, then we can deny ourselves. We can practice radical generosity. Later in the chapter, as he broadens us out even more to the whole church, he's going to go into more detail on this and talk more about the mission, the mission of the church to love the world, to care for the world, to be a force in the world. But I want to show you something. I think that if we say it's shaped by its identity, there's a couple things that we can practical implications we can get out of this right now. First of all, it's a community that is inviting It's so important in this world because we live in a world that judges. They judge people by what they wear. They judge people by their physical looks. They judge people by net worth. They judge us by who we are connected to and on and on and on. But it is judgment all the time. You go to a gathering of people and there will be some people going, I don't think that that person will help me. I'm not going to even bother with them. I'm going to go to this person because I think this person can help me. I was at at a thing, it was just an event. And somebody walked over and said, you're, you're a pastor, right? And I said, yeah. He goes, you need to go talk to that guy. He's rich. He could really help your church. And he looked at me and said, and, and he could really help God. Yeah, he could really help God. He tried to frame it in a, more, in a more Christian way. And I thought, now there's the problem, isn't it? Who I go see is based on what I think they can do for me or for the church. That's terrible. And so I went right to him. No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't ignore him. <laughs> yeah, boy. But we're constantly judged. We're constantly judged. What we wear, how we look, who we know, what we have. And the gospel, and by extension, the church, gives no weight to these things. We accept people because we are accepted. We accept people because we are accepted, even though we are not worthy. All right? So that's a simple one the community that is inviting, a community that shows unity. The world is full of competing agendas for self-promotion. And these agendas often clash and they cause conflict and people feel disrespected, people feel slighted. But the gospel reminds us that we're accepted by grace, therefore we have no reputation to protect and no reason to feel slighted or offended. It's funny when you're a pastor and people know about it, right? Because then it, you see them catch themselves sometimes, you know? Like, like somebody, somebody, somebody rips off, you know, a, I don't, <laughs> like an F-bomb, you know, it's a boom. And, you, and everybody's just like, well, and, and, and I was with about five guys a while back, and, and this guy said that, and the, and the other three go, and look at me, like, is lightning going to come down from heaven? Are you going to strike him dead? And the guy looks, he says, oh, man, you're, you're, you know, he said, you're a cleric. I'm really sorry. I'm sorry I said that. And I said, I'm sorry you called me a cleric. I mean, that's the, that's the biggest one right there. But I told him, I said, you know what? Dude, it, this does not bother me. It doesn't bother me. Don't worry about it. Why? Because he thought I was judging him. He thought I was going to judge him for that. And I'm like, no, it's, it's don't, don't worry about it, all right? Come to my church. I'd rather you didn't do that in church, but I'd love for you to come to my church. And I don't even like that I just said my church. It's not right. Come to first church, right? And so, and so what happens? People feel they, they judge, they, they, but we have no, we have no basis for judgment. 
because we're accepted. So we can have unity in a world filled with hostility and discord. Third one, implications of our identity is we are a community that serves. Jesus said, all I have is yours and all you have is mine and glory has come to me through them. You know, it's this community that's not filled with self-promotion, not filled with self-preservation. And if you're not self-promoting and thinking about self-preservation yourself, then what happens? You begin to have an outward look on life. You look outward to people. It's not about me. It's about other people. Have you ever been, we all know this, you know, maybe you're talking to somebody and while you're talking to them, they start, oh yeah. And you know, and how you feel when that happens or, or maybe they're not looking at you or maybe it's obvious they're not really listening to what you're saying. Or maybe as someone, you're talking to them and they keep changing the conversation to make it about them. And you suddenly realize they're obviously not interested in you and they're not interested in what you're saying. You begin to realize that. How does that make you feel? You know, what, what does it tell you? It's, it's like the person looked at you in the face and said, I don't care about you. I don't care about you. Now, I know um, this is a little harsh because maybe it's somebody who's very something important. I, I mean, I understand it, but that's how you can feel. But if you have someone who does exactly the opposite, they don't check their phone or their watch. They look at you intently obviously listening carefully. They don't interrupt you. They don't change the subject. You know, you're talking about something. Oh, I heard a funny thing about that. And you're like, it's not funny right now for me, you know? They're obviously interested in you and they're interested in what you're saying. What is that? How does that make you feel? That's life-giving. That's life-giving. Imagine if we were that way with people all the time. Imagine if we all served others in our homes. We had that outward look in our homes, in our neighborhoods in our place of work. Imagine if we thought about how others could flourish and how we could help them flourish and less about ourselves. Imagine if we thought more about what we could give them and less about what they could do for us. It is life-giving and life-changing. We are a church, a community that is inviting, that shows unity, that serves. So it's founded on truth, it's shaped by its identity, and it's on a mission. Jesus came on a mission. His mission was to glorify his Father. Understand that. His mission was to glorify his Father. You know, we talked about this too, when we looked at verses 1 through 5. We talked about the Son glorifying the Father, and the Father glorifying the Son, about this dance of love that, that the, the Trinity is in, self-glorifying each other, loving each other, serving each other, all just working together. And he came to extend the joys of this glory. He came to widen the circle, to draw us in, to broaden the dance. He says, all of this is yours and all you have is mine and glory has come to me through them. Talked a little bit earlier just about this glory. Glory has this substantialness, this weight, something lasting instead of something forgettable. And we all want that because we're made for it. But we try to get it in the wrong ways. We glorify things that are passing away. We glorify things that will come to an end. Relationships will end. Wealth will dissipate and eventually is lost. Reputation is forgotten. We pour out our lives sometimes for a glory that will fail. And we live with this unease in our lives. 
the sense that nothing is worth it. It all disappears. It all fails. I, I, somebody sent me an article uh, from a magazine. I forget if it was the Washingtonian or the New Yorker. One of the big cities. And, uh, and it was an article written by a, a philosopher uh, at a big college, very famous place. And, and he was talking about, in, in this article, about talking to a friend. Neither, they're not believers. And his friend, his friend uh, said, how can it be that this world is the result of an accidental Big Bang? How can it be there's no design, no metaphysical purpose in our lives? How can it be that every life, beginning with my own and my husband's, and my child, and spreading out. Every life is cosmically irrelevant. How can that be? And he, he wrote about this, and he, it was very interesting how people reveal themselves. And he just said this, and I, and I copied it. It's, I got it word for word. Here it is. He wrote this. As one gets older and parents and peers begin to die, and the obituaries and the newspaper are no longer missives from a faraway place, but local letters. And one's own projects seem ever more pointless and ephemeral. Such moments of terror and incomprehension seem more frequent and more piercing, and I find as likely to arise in the middle of the day as the night. What a moment of truth. The sudden realization, there's nothing to this. There's nothing to this. And what I love is he's truthful. He, he labels it terror. Terror. He says, if this is it, that's horrific. It's frightening. It's terrible. What is he saying? We're all trying to find glory. He's admitting that. And more often than not, it is in things that are relative and temporary and will not last, and they will disappoint. But here's the good news. Jesus says, join me on this mission of glory, this mission that has weight, this mission that means something, this mission that I can trust in. It will not fade. It will not fail. It will not disappoint. And here's what this mission looked like. And here's what it still looks like. In the most defining moment of Jesus' life, he decides to glorify the Father. And this is coming when he gets into the garden and he wants another way. But he yields and says, your way, God, your way. In the most defining moment of his life, he decides, I will glorify the Father. That's our mission. You may be in one, or it may be coming, or it may have already happened, a defining moment in your life. And God says, I want you to glorify me. You will find, you will find the most there. Not through self-preservation, not with Jesus, but with self-sacrifice. Jesus, it wasn't self-promotion, it was self-donation. It wasn't, it wasn't about a crown and a throne of gold, it was about a crown of thorns. And a cross, it was about giving glory. Giving glory to God. And ultimately, through that, he gave glory to us. We receive glory. To show the glory of the loving Father, that's what he wanted. We, as humans, often chase fool's gold. But we can be different. 
we can seek to glorify God. And what does that mean? How should I be different? How should you be different? How should this church be different? I don't know exactly all the answers, but I'm looking forward to what God does in my life, in your life, in the life of this church. What will he do? Because ultimately, it will be for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thanks for Jesus' prayer. It leads us to thinking and, and, and contemplating. It helps us to see your great love for us in the midst of being, getting ready to die, Jesus is thinking of others. Father, help us to begin to get that mindset, that looking outward, seeing others, and wondering, what can I do for them? How can they flourish? How can I be a part of it? How can God be glorified in this? Help us to have that mindset, Lord. It will change the way we live. And in doing that, we bring you glory. And we thank you for that privilege. In Jesus' name, amen.